Again, our passage is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, look, if you will, uh, beginning at verse 13. <clears throat> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, uh, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I want to begin by uh, mentioning a poem by a poet who I admit you may not have heard of. His name is Seamus Heaney, uh, Irish poet, died almost exactly five years ago, and he wrote a delightful poet that uh, many people read in a rather playful fashion. The, po the poem is called The Blackbird of uh, Glanmore. Uh, it's an autobiographical poem of uh, Mr. Heaney. He's writing about having gone to boarding school at age 12, leaving mom and dad and his siblings, his little brother uh, in particular. Uh, and during breaks, he would uh, return uh, home, the home of his uh, childhood. And he so looked forward to those uh, breaks when he'd come home. And uh, he writes a poem about a blackbird that he would always notice when he comes home on break from school. There's a refrain within the poem. He says, on the grass when I arrive, in the ivy when I leave. He's talking about this blackbird. Every time he comes home, on the grass when I arrive, there's that blackbird. And then when he leaves and he has to go back to school, in the ivy uh, when I leave, on the grass when I arrive, in the ivy when I leave, every uh, school holiday. What a wonderful, wonderful memory, isn't it? But you need to know this. On his first break, 
six weeks after school, he comes home, and the day before he comes home, his young brother, Christopher, had died in a car accident. And that blackbird is there. And it won't go away. And every time he comes home on school holiday, on the grass when I arrive, in the ivy when I leave, and that blackbird begins to be a symbol of death to him. Now, you see what has happened in that poem. It could have been a delightful poem about a blackbird, but now you think better. Now you know the tone of the poem, you know the emotions behind the poem. And we're looking at a passage this morning that often gets eaten up with debates about the end times and debates about the rapture. But there's a lesson here for us, a lesson in a biblical interpretation. I'm asking you, I'm appealing to you, notice the tone of the setting. When you notice the tone of the setting, the blackbird isn't a playful object, it's a symbol of death. And when you notice the tone of this setting, the emotional heartbeat of Paul, I hope that you'll see that this is not a passage that ought to service our debates about the end times and about the rapture. And so I want to begin my sermon by enticing you to think of the tone of this text, and then I want to move on to talk about the hope that is in this text and then close with uh, some of the details that often uh, sweep away our imagination. Uh, But first, the emotional uh, tone. I want you to see in just verse 13, in the opening of this passage, that there is a great abiding pastoral care that weighs heavily on the heart of Paul. Look at what he says. He says, we do not want you to be uh, ignorant. That word could be deluded or confused. We don't want you to be confused, my brothers and sisters. And he goes on, I don't want you either uh, to be sorrowful, distressed, or sad. I don't want you to be without hope, despondent. And I certainly don't want you to grieve like others. The word for others uh, can literally refer to the rest of the world. Uh, Don't grieve like the rest of the world. Paul knows that there's a poignant suffering and sorrow that his brothers and sisters are feeling. And he doesn't want them to be ignorant or sad or hopeless. And he doesn't want them to be left alone like the rest of the world. You see, it's important for us to understand that because Paul has already said numerous times in this letter uh, that these are the kind of people who love fellowship, love their brothers and sisters in the church. Uh, 4 verse 9, which we looked at last week, Paul says, concerning brotherly love, you don't need me to write. You know how to love each other. He says in 4.9 that you've even been taught by God, a word that shows up nowhere else in Scripture. You've been taught by God, so great is your love for one another. He says you love Christian saints wherever you find them. Uh, People in Macedonia and Achaia, they not only know about the love that this Thessalonian congregation has within the congregation, but they also know that they are loved by this congregation in Thessalonica. These are a people who love their brothers and sisters mightily. 
In chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, there's another example of their love. Uh, Paul says after Timothy comes back, he, he notices from Timothy that, uh, that you are the kind of people who make me so happy because you long to see me again just as I long to see you. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6. Concerning brotherly love, you just don't need me to write. You guys are filled with a warm love and affection for each other. But right now in this passage, these people who love their brothers and sisters, their hearts are broken over brothers and sisters who have died. Asleep, I believe, here is a euphemism uh, for death. These brothers and sisters love their brothers and sisters and their hearts are broken for their brothers and sisters who have already died. And they feel for them. They, they, they don't simply miss them. They grieve for them. And they ought to grieve for them. Paul doesn't uh, correct them by saying, stop grieving. We don't know who these dead brothers and sisters are. They could be uh, members of their very own church. Uh, uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, right in the middle, uh, Paul says that you've been persecuted just like me and just like the Jews in Jerusalem. And so these people have uh, felt the pressure of persecution, and it could be that members in their congregation have died as a result of persecution. Uh, we don't know uh, who their grief is directed towards. It, it could be uh, believers that aren't even a part of their church, believers in Macedonia and Achaia, uh, people whom they know have died and they grieve for them. You know, their grief for Christians who have died, it, it could be a grief for any saint that has died before the second coming, even Old Testament saints. We don't know for whom they're grieving. The Holy Spirit has not seen fit to let us know exactly who, but I do want you to understand this. The issue of this text, the burden of this text is not primarily a theological, it's personal. They love their brothers and sisters. What about those who've died? And so Paul's central purpose is this to fine-tune our doctrine of the end times? No. His central purpose, you hear it uh, echoed twice in this passage in verse 18 of chapter 4, therefore, that's where Paul's going, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And he says it again, look at 5.11, therefore, Therefore is a mark of uh, his objective. The trajectory is leading here. Therefore, 5.11, encourage one another. Build one another up. There's emotion in pathos all over this scripture in the Bible. We miss that. But I'm here to correct you and to correct myself. There's a serious achiness of heart, hurtness of spirit, Grief for brothers and sisters whom they love. That's the bedrock of this passage. And so Paul writes then to what? To comfort them, to encourage them, to build them up. And he begins by talking about the second coming. And what he says to them is he says that the second coming is actually our preeminent hope. Brothers and sisters, I know you're grieving and you're hurting, but the second coming it's our preeminent hope. Why? 
Why is the second coming our preeminent hope? Well, uh, Paul uh, has uh, hinted at this in 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1. Uh, Paul says in 1.10 uh, that at their conversion, the Thessalonian Christians did a number of things. They uh, turned away from serving idols, praise be to God. And they began to serve the living and the true God, praise be to God. But also at their conversion, they began to wait for his son. We often don't think about that in the beginning of our Christian walk. We think our Christian walk is an ascent to a body of knowledge, and indeed it is. But Paul, when he talks about their conversion, his preaching ministry there, in 110 he says they turned away from serving idols, they began to serve the living and the true God, and they began to wait. Waiting for the second coming of Jesus is an important part of the Christian life. It's a natural part of the Christian life. The second coming will testify to the, event, to the very event that secures that salvation. They have professed faith in Jesus Christ, but the second coming actually testifies to the very event that has secured that salvation, the resurrection of Jesus. Look in the end of our passage where, where Paul goes. Uh, Paul is going to say, first of all, in verse 14, Jesus died and rose again, but skip down to uh, 5.10 and 5.9, that Jesus died and rose again, he says to the Thessalonian Christians. And he says in 5.10, he died for us, not a pointless death, a death with an objective. He died for us. And 5.9 is so important. This is the means by which God has destined us for salvation rather than destining us for wrath, the very means for our salvation is the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's true that Paul is going to talk more about the death and resurrection of our Lord in other parts of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great example of that. But here, he is giving the Thessalonian Christians these little kernels so that they would see that the very expectation of the second coming is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The second coming is our preeminent hope because it's the definitive stamp that the gospel is real. The second coming is the preeminent hope because it's the definitive stamp that the gospel is real. The second coming is our preeminent hope. Why? For that reason, but there's another reason. Not only is the second coming the most emphatic proclamation of the gospel, but the second coming is when our sanctification and fellowship is finally perfected. Our sanctification and our fellowship, that which Paul has talked about the previous three chapters, it's at the second coming when those things are finally perfected. In 3.13, Paul's prayer for them is that at the return of Jesus... Their holiness before God will be established. That their fellowship with all of the saints will be perfected. That's Paul's prayer for them. Your holiness and the perfection of Christian community, it will be perfected in the second coming. That's 3.13, but when he closes this letter, he closes this letter with a beautiful benediction that states the very same thing, that your holiness and that our communion all together is going to be perfected finally in the second coming. You'll hear that benediction at the end of our service this morning. But let me put this another way. The second coming is when our sanctification and fellowship is uh, finally uh, perfected. But the second coming is actually when the summary of the law is made perfect in us. 
When we confessed our sins this morning, we confessed our uh, failure to love God as we ought to and our failure to love our neighbors as we ought to. And what Paul is saying is that in the second coming, uh, those, those two things are made perfect. We'll truly love God as we should have all along and we'll truly love the church as we should have all along. The second coming is when our sanctification and our fellowship is finally perfected. In verse 17, Paul says that every saint will be caught up together with our Lord. And then he goes on later in the passage, he says, whether awake or asleep, living or dead, we will be brought together to live with Jesus. Do you, do you hear that echo? We're with Jesus and we're together with Jesus. Whether we're awake or asleep, living or dead, we'll be brought together to live with Jesus. Our holiness and our fellowship are perfected in the second coming. Now, let me remind you what I asked. Why is it that the second coming is our preeminent hope? The first reason why is because it's the emphatic proclamation of the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus are fully and clearly testified, the second coming. But also because it's when our sanctification and our fellowship is finally perfected. Now, this is a special encouragement to all of us. I think that a lot of times we are afraid to use the doctrine of the second coming as an encouragement amidst desperate suffering. Why is that? Why is that that we are afraid to encourage our brothers and sisters with the hope of the second coming? We very often encourage our brothers and sisters through uh, techniques or uh, platitudes. Do we remind them that their Jesus will return. God will keep you close to him forever. He will blot out all of your sin. He will destroy all of your enemies, but he will also take away all of your pain and your suffering and your weeping. All of it. You know, often among Christians, the second coming becomes uh, a tool that's used in ways that are unhelpful. The second coming be begins to uh, be a diatribe against wicked people or a wicked culture. Just you wait, Jesus will come and he will have his way with you. Just you wait. And oftentimes we uh, use the second coming as a scientific way to understand uh, the future with the same kind of clarity that we understand uh, the past. Um, and then the second coming, well, it just becomes an overlay to a cosmic timeline. And that's how we tend to use the doctrine of the second coming. An eviction notice to everything that we hate in culture or a laboratory for futurism. But for Paul, for Paul, the second coming is precisely the doctrine that he uses to comfort his brothers and sisters whom he loves deeply amidst their grief and their sorrow. Oh, I wish that we could return to that application of this doctrine. Well, 
Paul is going to, of course, give us some details about the second coming, and I suppose that having read that passage, you have several questions for me. So let me uh, very quickly say four things with regards to the details that Paul provides about the second coming. Uh, Paul will say that the second coming is a real event, a loud event, a gathering event, and a guaranteed event. And I want to complete uh, this sermon by parking on how the second coming is a guaranteed event. But uh, first of all, to be sure, the second coming to Paul is a real event. Uh, He uses the same vivid reality uh, with regards to the second coming as he does for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Notice in verse 16, the the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Uh, And he even references clouds in verse 17. He's describing uh, something that is a, a real, actual event. Uh, This is exactly what he would have learned from the original disciples uh, when Jesus ascended into heaven, Acts uh, chapter 1. Jesus' glorified body there was uh, taken up from earth into a cloud, and it was visible. The disciples are standing on the ground looking up. They see it. It's a real event. And then two angels uh, come alongside the disciples, and they say to the disciples in Acts 1.11, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And Paul's heard that story, and Paul believes it is a real event. To Paul, the second coming is nothing less than a real event. We will see it. Our earthly eyes will behold it. But he fine-tunes that a little bit, and I think it's important to distinguish that not only is it a real event, Paul says it's a loud event. Verse 16, he says, there will be a cry of command made by the voice of an archangel, likely Michael. He's the only one in Scripture who's referred to as an archangel, Daniel 10, but a couple of places in the New Testament. But there's going to be a loud noise, a loud articulate noise, a cry of command. He doesn't give us the content of that command. But not only will our eyes behold, but our ears will take in. Verse 16, there will be a loud trumpet blast. This is, again, not an invention of Paul. This is nearly a word-for-word promise that Jesus himself makes in Matthew 24. The second coming is a real event. It's a loud event. Everyone is going to see it. And Paul says that the second coming is also a gathering event. Both those who have died as well as those who have not yet died. They're going to be gathered together. Paul's focus here is the gathering of believers, but if you look at Matthew 25, Jesus tells us about the gathering of the entire world. But Paul's focusing. It's Christian brothers and sisters that his Thessalonian uh, friends are missing. And so he's focusing on believers. And he says they're going to be gathered. He says in 16, uh, the dead in Christ, Christians who have passed away, they're going to be resurrected first. That's a funny thing for Paul to say. They're going to be resurrected first. Uh, uh, Commentators have all kinds of opinions on what's meant by uh, the dead in Christ being the first to be uh, resurrected. Uh, Likely, what Paul is offering to the Thessalonians is an encouragement. It seems like Uh, Those Christians who are living are actually going to have an opportunity to witness the resurrection of Christians who've gone before them. Imagine that. Is that what he's saying in verse 16? I think he may be. That those who are living at the second coming, they'll actually uh, take in with their eyes the very resurrection of those who are dead in Christ. 
And then in verse 17, all the saints will meet their Lord in the clouds. They'll be uh, caught up with him. Uh, Verse 17, this is our word for rapture that comes to us from the Latin Vulgate. Uh, Paul's focus here seems to be on this, uh, the togetherness of the church despite the fact that some have died. The dead and the living they're going to be gathered together, going to be caught up together by the, by the working hand of God, uh, by, the, by the destined plan of God. We'll talk about God's plan later in the passage. But the focus is not on the word rapture, not in verse 17. The focus is on the togetherness, that they'll be caught up, that they'll be gathered together. You know, in Matthew 25... Jesus says that all of resurrected humanity is going to be uh, gathered before him to be judged. It's Matthew 25. They'll be gathered before him to be judged. He'll put the wicked on one side and the righteous on another side. We know this passage. But when I read Matthew 25, I always think that that's an event that takes place on the ground. Everyone's gathered, but they're, but they're uh, standing before him. But uh, I've read and reread Matthew 25. The word ground doesn't show up there. Maybe the gathering takes place in heaven. In verse 17, uh, these uh, individuals are, are gathered together in the sky among the clouds. I'm, I'm not sure, but when uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 and Matthew chapter 25 are put together, it does seem to me that they're gathered together in the clouds, but then uh, they stand on earth, according to Matthew 25, it seems, uh, where all of humanity is gathered before Jesus Christ to be judged. Sounds like something that takes place on the ground. But the gathering, that's what's important to Paul. The second coming, it's a gathering event. Death is not going to stop that meeting. And the Thessalonian Christians in particular need to hear that. Your brothers and sisters who are not with you now, there will be a future gathering with Jesus, with one another. And then finally this, the second coming Paul wants to make ever certain that the Thessalonian Christians know that the second coming is not hypothetical. It is guaranteed. I love 5 verse 1. It's so humbling. Paul says that he doesn't even have to write anything to them about this particular point. Nobody knows the exact date of the second coming. You see that 5-1 right there. Every Christian needs to be aware of 1 Thessalonians 5-1. Paul says, I don't even have to write, anything, write something to you about this. You know it. We don't understand the exact date of the second coming. But Paul says it'll come. Some people uh, wish to coast through life assuming that uh, any peace and security that they have on earth is going to go on forever. Maybe you know people like that. They work as hard as they can for a peace and a security that is founded on earth and they assume it'll last forever and it won't Paul says the second coming is guaranteed he says that there's a kind of sleep that is safe Christians who have died but there's a kind of sleep that's dangerous the kind of sleep that's delusional The kind of sleep that's a walking in the world in darkness, assuming that everything that you have on earth will last 
for all eternity. For a Christian who has died, their sleep is temporary. They're in the presence of Jesus. Jesus was very clear about that, speaking with the thief on the cross when he said that this very day you'll be with me in paradise. Those brothers and sisters of ours who have died, they're with Jesus. Jesus has said so. But they aren't bodily with Jesus. But they will be. Paul says that the second coming is a guaranteed event. Don't sleep dangerously walking in darkness as if there will never be a second coming. Christian, know that it's guaranteed. There's something here, my brothers and sisters, that we need to take. You see, because the second coming is a guaranteed event, that means there is a way for us to live our lives in the present. This is where I want us to finish. You see, the second coming is a real event. It's a loud event. It's a gathering event. But it's a guaranteed event. All of this means that you and I, in Jesus Christ, we actually belong to a far larger narrative than we imagine. Paul believed that the way to encourage Christians is to remind them that they belong to a cosmic story that is much larger than their life on earth and a cosmic story that is far more guaranteed than is their life on earth. The second coming will be the consummation. It'll be the grand climax to everything that you believe in the gospel. Every promise that has been made will be testified to you in the second coming. I'm not saved by my own efforts, by my own intentions, by my, by my own morals, by my own ethics. I'm not saved by my membership in the earthly church. I'm saved by God's grace in the gospel. I believe that, and you should believe that. The power of the gospel dwells with God, but that plan, brother and sister, is afoot right now. In 5.9, Paul says that God's destiny for his children is the power of the gospel that stretches beyond today. I never own the gospel. I belong to the gospel. That's what Paul says in 5.8. I belong to the day. But not only do I not own the gospel in my conversion, I never own the gospel. It's a wild narrative. It's a cosmic plan. Uh, brothers and sisters, the gospel narrative has not run its course completely. It's not over. You may be here this morning in pain against your intentions to be here. Sour attitude, hurting right now, grieving right now, struck by maybe it's patterns of sin, uh, maybe it's pained human relationships. But Paul says to believers, you belong to the day. The gospel's running, and it's running through its cosmic past and cosmic present and cosmic future. It can't be stopped. He will come again. Now, together, Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 5, let's be aware of that. Yes, you're hurting. The blackbird is there on the grass, in the ivy, every day, and you're hurting. But together, my brothers and my sisters, in Christ Jesus, there's something for us because the second coming is guaranteed, because the gospel rolls forward. So together, let's wear confidently 
the breastplate of faith and love. And let us hope for that which is truly guaranteed in our lives, the return of our Lord and Savior. You see what Paul does in verse 9 of chapter 5. He grounds everything in the gospel. The gospel rolls forward. And your pain and your hurt today does not define you. The gospel rolls forward. And he will come again. Now let's wear confidently the breastplate of faith and love. And let us hope for that which is truly worthy of our hope. The coming of our Lord and Savior. Would you please pray with me? Father, would we love the comfort that Paul has for these Thessalonian Christians? And would we also be comforted in the same way? We pray for forgiveness, for fashioning for ourselves uh, our own little kingdoms on earth where the bills are paid, the houses are large, and the career moves forward and upward. Oh, Father, may we get beyond that And may we place our hope in the power of the gospel. Oh, Jesus, would you come? In your name, amen.